and welcome. You're listening to Canberra's People Powered Radio, 2XXFM 98.3. The program is subject to ACT with me, Sophie Singh, bringing you stories of community and current affairs from our local city and beyond. Stories with a global dimension. Launched recently, the Practical Guide to Law and Protests in the Australian Capital Territory guides activists through the information they need to plan and prepare for protest action, including non-violent civil disobedience. Produced by Green Law, an organisation led by young people to empower the next generation of lawyers to understand the importance of environmental law and the power of legal institutions to further climate justice. To tell us more about the guide and Green Law, we're joined by Vanessa Spawn. Vanessa, it's lovely to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Green Law has developed a practical guide to law and protests in the ACT. Tell me about the guide and tell me how it was developed. How did you decide what was covered? What consultation did you do and how have you structured the guide? Sure. So the practical guide is the first comprehensive guide to protest in the ACT, which uh, we saw a gap for. And um, yeah, we thought we'd want to build on the work of groups like the Environmental Defenders Office um, to build a really comprehensive guide to help people um, participate in uh, protests in a way that they felt comfortable, in a way that they wanted to, to achieve the goals that they wanted as well. There was a lot of consultation, um, but first, I guess, we built a group of really passionate students at the ANU, all law students um, who care about environmental advocacy. And we really saw, all of us saw the importance of protest in, in environmental advocacy. So in terms of consultation, we spoke to um, groups like XR and the EDO and especially a lot of um, legal academics at the ANU. ANU has some really incredible academics there, um, such as um, Dr. Anthony Hopkins, Matthew Zagor as well. Yeah, they really helped us with the nitty gritty of the guide to make sure it was all legally accurate. But protest groups like um, XR... ASIN as well really helped us make it practical as well so it would help um, groups who are actually participating in protest. And XR being Extinction Rebellion. Yes, that's right. And Australian Students Environmental Network. Yes, that's right. When you say you became aware of a gap, because presumably that gap has existed for some time Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of there being such a guide, was there something in particular at this point in time that highlighted that gap? I think, um, and first off, when when I say gap, there was already existing work from the EDO um, in the ACT. They'd done some really great resources. Um, But there was that, I guess, more comprehensive gap and a lot of, um, I guess, particular issues around things like arrest um, there was a gap in knowledge amongst protesters uh, and in terms of the catalyst for the guide we started to develop this at the end of 2019 which is um, when Fridays for Future was really building up and that I guess really showed us the importance of protest in um, especially the climate justice um, and climate action movement but then at the same time that's when the bushfires began and my family is from the south coast so we were personally affected by that yeah so many people I guess suddenly climate change was real and even even for me it I've been working on climate change for for a really long time but I don't think it became really real for me for for a while so I think that was the case for a lot of Australians and a lot of activists and also the Black Lives Matter movement um, happening while we were developing the guide was um, a really big motivator too for us. 
yeah, just so much anger and frustration. And we really wanted as a group to channel that into something that could be really effective. The guide talks a lot and refers a lot to non-violent direct action. That's right. And it distinguishes this form of action from uh, peaceful protest. Mm-hmm. For the purposes of the guide, how did you define non-violent direct action? Sure. I think the term has been used even before the civil rights movement um, in the US. So we defined it as any um, form of protest that doesn't involve violence to people or property. I guess it's quite similar to a peaceful protest, although it might be a bit more active than what people might imagine as a peaceful protest. Or a peaceful protest might be something where you're sitting still. A non-violent direct action it might be something like um, a march, but also you could describe a march as a peaceful protest too. Yeah, it's hard to d- clearly distinguish yes. the two. It's not necessarily an action that is um, in breach of any law. That's right. Vanessa, you mentioned that there were areas of of knowledge gaps. Mm -hmm. So in your consultation with activists, what did you find were those areas where um, those gaps were more pronounced, where there was um, uh, the least understanding about sort of rights, obligations and so on? Sure. I think one of the knowledge gaps for me and then other activists too was um, resisting arrest, which is often a place where people get into trouble where they don't want to get into trouble. For example, um, you can be resisting an arrest even if you're resisting not your own arrest but somebody else's arrest. And certain things can be still seen as resisting arrest even though you're not like running away or or punching an officer or anything. It can just simply be um, not abiding by that arrest um, and not accepting that arrest. So could that include just being a dead weight? I actually don't know the answer to that question. That was one of the main things we struggled with in the guide and one of the things we had to get a lot of academic consultation onto. It's an area of the guide that I think has to be read quite carefully and an area where we couldn't really make black and white distinctions between what is and what isn't. And we also really had to err on the side of caution with the guide because we don't want to be writing anything in there that then gets people into trouble. Of course. And you can't write a guide that is actually specific legal advice. It has to, because of its nature, be something more general. That's right. And especially because we're all students who are on on our way to become lawyers, but just don't have that certificate yet. So, yeah. (laughs) Vanessa told me before we started the interview that today she graduated. So... (laughs) On air, I just want to congratulate you. Thank you. (laughs) Vanessa, are there any unique considerations about undertaking a protest or a non-violent direct action in the ACT? Sure. The the biggest one for us and um, for all protesters in the ACT is that we have a distinction between Commonwealth and ACT land um, here in the Territory. So that's a really important thing to know, especially for organisers, because, you know, you're planning where your protest is going to happen. And often that's going to be in areas such as Parliament House. um, And that's actually Commonwealth land, not ACT land. And then while we didn't find any big differences in terms of the laws applying to protest, it's really important still to know so that even if you then later on have to seek legal advice, you know, to mention that that's where the protest occurred or that's where the arrest occurred, um, because that's important for lawyers to know. The guide has quite a comprehensive section on defamation. So how could a street protest or a non-violent direct action action breach defamation laws? What's the mm. relationship between the two? So first of all, defamation was actually something that a lot of groups wanted to know more about. And that's because I guess some of them have been threatened with defamation actions. And that comes up, for example, 
in chants that happen at protests, in speeches that are given at protests. For example, if you're um, chanting something that is uh, not true about a particular individual within the climate space, then that could potentially lead to a defamation action. But defamation is an extremely complex part of the law. We had to um, speak to a specialist in defamation um, for that chapter. That chapter went through three different iterations um, before we were happy with it. It gives um, a good, I guess, summary and basic knowledge about what risks um, there are and what to avoid doing. But it is definitely an area that you need to get specialist advice on. If an organisation invites somebody outside of that organisation to speak at uh, an event that they organise and the non-associated person speaking on the platform says something that might run the risk of being defamatory, Mm. are the organisers responsible for that? In terms of a legal action, that, that'll depend on whatever that person who thinks that there's been a defamatory statement against them decides to, to do and who they decide to take action against um, because there may be a legal avenue for them to attribute responsibility to the organisation rather than the individual, but it's a litigation strategy depending on who they choose to, to sue. But at the same time, in terms of just like general and less legal, I think there's a responsibility on organisers. And we talk about this in the guide in the defamation chapter about making sure that whoever is speaking on behalf of the organisation or speaking at the event has proper training and and you know what that person's going to say. Because even if you don't get sued, also organisations don't want that kind of publicity and that stress. I mean, often these people are are volunteers organising this and they don't want to attract that sort of thing. Of course. Yeah. The guide covers, uh, probably unsurprisingly, quite a lot of material regarding the police. That's right. What were the key aspects that you felt were really critical to cover in the guide between Mm. bringing out uh, the role of the police and the relationship between the police and activists? I think one of the most important things that we wanted to talk about in the guide was what happens directly after arrest when you're waiting in custody, whether you're going to be charged or, or let out without charge, because that's often the most traumatic part of the arrest process for a lot of people, especially some groups uh, such as First Nations people, the LGBTIQ community as well. So we really wanted to talk about the particular stresses um, with that, um, such as how long police can can hold you for, what questions you might be asked and what supports you're entitled to while you're in that situation. Another thing we, we spoke about, which I think there was a bit of misunderstanding about amongst protesters, was I guess the consequences of getting convicted or, or of getting charged too. So there's a little bit on that in there as well. One of the things that you make clear is it is required by law for you to provide your name and address. Mm -hmm. Are there any other requirements legally to provide any other information other than those two elements? No, not legally. Is there information that the police are required to provide you legally as a protester? If you ask, they have to tell you their name and their station. You would have looked at a lot of material in developing the guide around the role that police take in protests and non-violent direct action. To what extent do you think it is possible for police to lay charges that perhaps don't seem to fit the circumstances but have a different agenda, perhaps to discourage, to intimidate? Police have discretion to charge you with something. And I have seen examples in, in other jurisdictions of it looking like that's what's happened and that's what they're trying to do. 
Although as well, I haven't been there to see those situations, so I can't make a a clear black and white statement on the legality of that or what those police intended to do. But I haven't seen any examples of that in the ACT. At the same time, I haven't been at every protest in the ACT, but I do think there is scope for police to do that. And I think also what we've seen too is extending police powers in jurisdictions like Queensland, which are giving police extra powers to place additional charges and more serious charges charges against protesters. And I think that that is definitely a tool for disincentivizing participation in protests. And I also think participation in democracy um, as well. So I think that's um, particularly concerning. I want to ask you about green law. How do you see that environmental law can be used more proactively or vigorously to further climate justice? I think that our federal government could set a target for net zero emissions, and I think they should set an ambitious one, although I don't see that happening anytime soon. Australia has the second largest number of climate litigation cases in the world, and that's really excellent to see, and especially we saw recently um, in the federal court that judgment that the Australian government has a duty of care in relation to climate action. But I think like on top of climate litigation, while that's a very useful tool, that needs to be an instigator for broad reform. We need reform of the electricity grid so it can um, take renewable energy as well. And then we need things like a climate target. So I think as well as we have this litigation that's happening, we need that to be followed by substantive legislative reform that's going to ensure that Australia is working towards a sustainable future based on renewables. And also we need to be protecting our beautiful ecosystems we have here in Australia, some very unique environments. Yeah, I wish I could say this is the one piece of legislation we need, (laughs) but I think that Australia really has a little way to go. Vanessa, thank you very much for coming in and speaking with me. No problem. Thank you. you. That was Vanessa Spawn from Green Law, who, together with other young lawyers and law students, is working to empower environmentally conscious organisations to engage effectively with legal institutions. The Guide to Protests in the ACT is available online. Just type in Guide to Protests in the ACT in your search engine, or you can find it in the document library at the Green Law website. And if you go in through that pathway, you can also take the opportunity to read a bit more about the work of Green Law. And it's really inspiring that we have passionate and committed young people at the centre of the struggle for climate justice. The program is Subject ACT on your people-powered radio, 2XXFM 98.3. You can always stream us live or on demand at the 2XX website. Just go to 2XXFM.org.au. I'm Sophie Singh. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week.